We are in this Lenten season, uh, and as we're going through this Lenten season, um, we are following on track with the different readings that are traditionally uh, read um, across different denominations. And so this week we have the Ten Commandments. I was speaking to um, the, the pastor uh, just the other day at Grace Lutheran there going through the same passage. So this is a very common one. So sort of begged the question for me, um, why pick the Ten Commandments for Lent? What is the purpose? Why are they read at several different um, services? And then made me think about what is ultimately the purpose of the Ten Commandments, not just in this Lenten season, but overall. It reminded me of a, a time when I was in college. We we were in Des Moines. I think we were going to play Simpson, if I've got the location correct. And uh, we got rained out for the entire Saturday. And we, our games got pushed to Sunday, so we were just staying there for a little longer. And so we went to the Jordan Creek Mall for like half the day, just to kill the day, because we had so much to do. And we were in hotels, and it was boring. And so our coach took us to uh, Jordan Creek Mall. And while we were there, uh, a group of my teammates kind of got cornered by this guy evangelizing to different people at the, uh, at the, um, at the mall. And, and props to him, he did a great job. But one of the things he did was he sort of talked through all the Ten Commandments with this group who decided to kind of sit with him as he spoke through. And he asked each person, you know, what the purpose of the Ten Commandments were or how they were in light of them. And every person, you know, said, you know, I'm doing okay, right? The purpose of the Ten Commandments is to teach me how to live, you know, to have some sort of wisdom for my life, the requirements for God for me, um, kind of a moral code for Christians. And even for some non-Christians, uh, a lot of wisdom can be had and extrapolated from the Ten Commandments. And when you treat the Ten Commandments like this, as kind of a moral code for your life, um, I think by and large we recognize that we don't knock them out perfectly, but we do pretty well. You know, I, I don't notice any of us uh, bowing down to a um, statue of Krishna every single morning. I, um, I think most of us do our best not to use the Lord's name in vain. You all are knocking number three out right now. You're remembering the Sabbath day. Uh, we do our best to honor our father and mother. I don't think anybody is actively murdering people or sleeping in other people's beds or actively stealing from places in Storm Lake or being called to the stand in, in front of a, a court and, and telling lies about somebody that they're asked to do. Not necessarily coveting our neighbor's house or our neighbor's wife or manservant or maidservant. Their ox or donkey, I'm quite sure we're knocking that one out of the park. But I think what this highlights for me is, is often that while it is true that this is a moral code for us to try to live our lives by, if that is the only understanding we have of the Ten Commandments, I think we lose some of the depth that they have. They are far more complex than just this simple understanding of this is how I ought to live my life. There's more there. So let me walk through the first four commandments and try to highlight this. And the reason that I'm doing this is because for years I would read Matthew 5 and I would read Jesus equating anger with murder and lust with adultery, like putting those on the same, um, in terms of our relationship with God, putting those on the same level. And I sort of wondered, uh, what would Jesus have done with the other commandments? How would he have brought those to bear upon our lives in ways that are a little bit more than just the surface level? 
So commandment number one, you shall have no other gods. Um, I'm going to pull a lot from uh, Luther's catechism. He goes through the Ten Commandments and has um, just some really good ideas of what, what it means, not just in the negative side of, of, of doing it, but also the positive side. And his explanation for this one is we should fear, love, and trust in God above all things. Our minds probably right away go to Exodus 32, the golden calf, which isn't long after this text. But I don't think we as quickly go to, say, like Luke 16, when the rich young ruler couldn't part with his money, when Jesus said, sell all the possessions you had. What he was doing there was, was valuing his money more than God, right? He wasn't fear, fearing, loving, and trusting God. And it causes me to ask the question, what, what would your bank account say that you value the most, right? If we allowed the commandment one to lay over our lives in such a way, what would that, what would that speak? Or Genesis 11, um, those who were building the Tower of Babel considered their achievement more important than God's. Have you ever pursued worldly achievement, not to glorify God, but to glorify yourself? For me, this is a super easy one to break. Uh, I'm a baseball coach. It's all about winning. It's all about making the other person look less than. It's all about building my team up and ultimately winning such that we might receive glory and I might be seen as the good coach that I am. And so if you... If you've done either of these things, if you've not fear, feared, loved, or trust God above all things in all areas of life, even when it's just something as simple as money or um, the job we have, then you have broken commandment number one. Command two, you shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God. Luther explains this one as, we should fear and love God so that we do not curse, swear, use satanic arts, lie, or deceive by his name, but call upon it in every trouble. Pray, praise, and give thanks. There's no doubt this has to do um, that he's bringing it out with, with our language. And yet, he's also uh, pointing out things like what Psalm 50.15 says. Call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you, and you will honor me. Or Ephesians 5.20, give thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so before you told that lie, did you call upon God to help you not tell the lie. If you didn't, you just broke commandment number two, because you didn't call upon him in your time of trouble. Did you give thanks to God today that you woke up, that you're breathing, that you had no car trouble on the way over here, that we have a comfortable place to worship? If you haven't, you've broken commandment number two. Command three, remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Luther says we should fear and love God so that we do not despise his preaching and his word but hold it sacred and gladly hear and learn it. You'll notice he never said anything in there about a specific day of the week. In Matthew eleven twenty-eight, 28, Jesus says, Come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Just a few verses later, in 12, 8 of Matthew, he says, The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. The Sabbath, ultimately, is a sign pointing to Jesus, who is our rest. We don't find our rest in a day, but in a person. Now, that doesn't mean that there isn't still wisdom and really good things for us to set aside this day of worship. Please don't hear me saying that. I'm not negating the more um, basic understanding of the law that helps us, uh, helps guide our lives morally. I'm not denying that as much as I'm trying to expand it a little bit. 
So Jesus ultimately is our rest. So have you ever found your rest or your comfort or your satisfaction in something other than Christ? Say, food or, or video games or movies, shows, escaping into a novel, or even something as benign as a workout regimen. I'm around a, um, a person right now who is going through an exceedingly difficult time within their marriage, and it's not their fault at all. It's totally on the other side. And I see this person exercising to the nth degree. Um, they've lost an incredible amount of weight. They've put on a lot of lean mass. And while my heart breaks for this person, that the marriage is falling apart, and there's really nothing that they can do about it, I'm also struck that the response to it, the place that this person is finding their rest or their comfort or their satisfaction is ultimately seems to be in trying to transform their bodies such that it's almost like my spouse is really going to regret what they're doing right now. That even something as simple as keeping yourself healthy can turn into something that you find your rest or your satisfaction in apart from Christ. And so if you have ever found your release in something other than Christ, you are guilty of breaking the third commandment. The final one I'll look at, honor your father and mother. Luther says here we should fear and love God so that we do not despise or anger our parents and other authorities. He throws all authority underneath this one. But honor them, serve and obey them, love and cherish them. In Romans 13, 2, Paul says, He who rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted, and those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. I might, be getting a, I might get in a little trouble for doing this, but as I think about the authority that God has instituted, and then us rebelling against that authority in light of honoring your father and mother or honoring the people who are placed over us, more generally speaking, I... I couldn't help but think about masks and how difficult masks have been, right? And it's difficult because my wife's a physician, right? I think we all recognize that. And so I'm, uh, I'm more likely to be pro them because uh, I just have the information that she has. However, I will wholeheartedly confess, I hate wearing them, especially when I'm coaching my guys and I'm trying to talk to them and showing them exercises. It's exhausting. I can't wait until we're done with it. But any time that I find myself struggling with somebody who isn't going to wear a mask, um, I coach in the weight room as well, and there's, there's often people who don't wear them, and it's, it's really difficult because we have athletes in there who then their entire season could get shut down for two weeks because somebody else didn't do it, right? Ultimately, what does it come down to? It comes down to somebody honoring themselves over others, right? And so the mask issue to me is not as much not trying to take a stand here to, as much as to use it as an illustration of what this commandment is trying to bring out. The command is here is because we are very quick to honor ourselves over other people. We're very quick to consider ourselves more than other people. I know that this is always true for my kids. I get so frustrated when I constantly have to serve them. And it's constantly revealing to me that what I would like is to be served more than to serve them. And then I think about Jesus, our Savior, who, who goes from heaven, this perfect place, and stoops down and comes into our life and does what? Washes his disciples' feet. He serves them. He shows that honoring people, 
looks like lowering yourselves beneath them, even if you are above them. And to be clear, Jesus is above us, and yet he came to serve us. And so if you've ever put your needs or yourself before somebody else, you've broken the fourth commandment. Now, I could do this for all the commandments, but suffice to say, we ring a resounding O for 10 if we actually look at them clearly. And I think there are a few things that we miss if we treat the commands as just this simple, moral, this is what you ought to do in your life. The first thing we miss, and I have that in, your, uh, in the notes there, is, is ultimately what we miss is that we're failures. Quite simple. We're utter failures. And I don't think this is as much as an error of knowledge. Like, I don't think that me extrapolating the first four commands is now going to um, help you. Like, you have a better knowledge base now, so now you can follow the commands better. If anything, I think helping see the depth of the commands and how much they're asking from you helps you see that, wow, I am far worse than I thought. I think it's more of an error of old Adam. This person who resides in us, this old person, who loves finding his righteousness in works who loves measuring, and the law, if anything, is a great measuring tool, especially when you're measuring it against somebody else. This guy named David Zoll, and he always says, um, we all agree that we've all fallen short of the glory of God, but but that doesn't stop us from comparing. (laughs) We really like to compare ourselves to other people, and, and, and rules of the law allow us to do that especially when they're stayed in kind of that simplistic understanding that they're just a moral thing that I can either do correctly or not, kind of this black and white thing, that there's not depth to it. Again, Jesus equates anger with murder, lust with adultery. Paul in Galatians, as he's talking, uh, he's talking about uh, these uh, Jewish Christians who, who were, um, well, Paul actually says they're not Christians, um, because they're, they're, they're asking Gentile Christians, people who weren't Jews first, to get circumcised once they become a Christian, that that should be a part of becoming a Christian, is these extra things to do. And he says to them, hey, if you're going to require circumcision, you should just emasculate yourself. You should just go the whole way. If you're going to go a little bit, go the whole way. And James says, if you break one part of the law, you've broken all of it. And so the law is absolutely, utterly convincing in that under it, if we want to uh, judge our life based on it, there will be no other verdict other than failure, if we allow the law to do what it's supposed to do. And so that's the first thing I think we miss, is if we make them very simplistic, they're far too easy for us to follow. We miss that we are utter failures. Your order will be a little bit different. I, I, I changed it. The second point, I think it flows a little bit better, is we, we change the language from I shall to I must. And what happens there is we, move, uh, we remove, when we, when we change, you'll notice uh, it says you shall have no other gods. You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything. And we change it to you must do it. What we do is we remove its sort of future meaning or, or um, kind of the fancy theological word, its eschatological meaning. That is, when we have I shall not covet, we change it to I must not, and it has to be right now. I must not do this. And, and listen, to be clear, I want to over and over say I'm not denying the wisdom of not coveting. 
it would be better for your life right now if you didn't covet, right? We agree with that. So I'm not denying that the law is saying that. I am saying that it's also saying more than just simple whether or not you can or can't do it and whether or not you should. There is great wisdom in saying that you must not covet. But when we remove I shall, we remove this idea that the day is coming when you shall not covet, that this is something that God will bring about, that there is this future time when God will bring this about because he is my God and he has delivered me from the ultimate devil, from sin and death. Yes, it is what God requires of us, but it is also what he will bring about. It might be helpful for you to add in Christ to the beginning of each of these commandments because Christ's keeping of the commandments becomes our keeping of the commandments. This is what we believe in the gospel. It's not just something that we must do, but it's something that Christ does for us. It still stands that we must do these under the law. That still stands. We are not denying that. But under the gospel, we have done them because Christ has done them for us. So, in Christ, you shall have no other gods. In Christ, you shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God. In Christ, you will remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. In Christ, you will honor your father and mother, and so on and so forth. They become descriptions of who we are as Christ does them for us and reckons them to us by faith. So that's the second thing I think we miss when we have a very simplistic understanding. The third thing we miss is this comparison between Mount Sinai and Mount Zion. And I'm pulling this pretty strongly from Chad Bird. He's an Old Testament scholar. And he pointed this out in a podcast. I thought it was really fantastic. Um, You can read the whole of chapter 19, but I'll just read two verses to kind of illustrate it. Uh, Chapter 19, verses 12 and 13 says, Put limits for the people around the mountain and tell them, Be careful that you do not approach the mountain or touch the foot of it. Whoever touches the mountain is to be put to death. They are to be stoned or shot with arrows. Not a hand is to be laid on them. No person or animal shall be permitted to live. Only when the ram's horn sounds a long blast may they approach the mountain. What this shows is that Mount Sinai, this place where the law is coming, is a place of death. Nothing can touch it. You can't even approach it unless he blows this horn and says, yeah, you can approach it, but make sure nobody touches it. And if they get, any, get close at all, they're going to die. Put them to death. Ultimately, Mount Sinai is what interacting with God looks like apart from Christ. If you want to live by the law, it is a place of death. And if you want to live apart from grace, apart from the gospel, it will only be death. Mount Zion, though, is this, this city on a holy hill. It is this place of grace where God dwells with his people. And yet, we often treat it as if its only purpose is to get us back to Mount Sinai. It's almost like we go to Zion to get our climbing gear so that then we can go back to Sinai and get back to the top where God is. And yet we forget that God descended in the form of Jesus Christ. To put it in New Testament language, what we do is we go to the gospel in order to be able to finally have the ability to climb to God according to the law. But Paul's entire letter of Galatians is an illustration that that's futile. 
It's actually no gospel at all. It's not good news. It's just death all over again. The final point I believe we miss if we make the commands too simplistic is that they're actually not commands. The Jewish faith would not have called them commands. If you look, like in my Bible, for instance, chapter 20, verse 1 says, and God spoke all these words. The only place that commandments come is like in a title, and those aren't biblical. Those are just things that people added later. Sometimes they're helpful, but in this case, it's not the translation of the word. The Jews would have called these ten words or sayings, or speeches. And the reason they would do this is because um, commandments 9 and 10, we kind of break up. You shall not covet your, your, your neighbor's house, and then we break 10 to be um, your neighbor's uh, wife, and servant, and ox, or donkey. We break those apart. For the Jews, they put them together. Their first commandment, or their first word, comes in verse 2. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of Egypt. Out of the land of slavery. The first command isn't a command at all. It's an action by God. You were in slavery. I brought you out of slavery. This is probably the most important part of seeing this text. That it is prefaced. It begins by the preceding work of God's saving. It's not how we climb to God via these commandments, but instead how we respond to the work that God has already done, to his saving work. Before prohibiting or asking anything of God's people, he says that he is God for them, working on their behalf. And so that must be the most important thing. Pursue the Ten Commandments, yes and amen. Try to be a better person. I would love that, but it must always be rooted in a foundation that says, I am responding to the love of God shown to me in Christ, that he has brought me out of slavery, and now I'm free to follow the commands. It's actually, as we're reading that psalm, right, and you're going, how can, how can David say, mm, sweeter than honey these commands are? Your laws, your rules, your precepts, they're so wonderful. How can he say that? Because there's this sense in which, I hesitate to know the exact words to use, but it's almost as if he's sort of graduated beyond this sense of, of, of the rules being this thing that condemn him, and instead he knows that he is secure in his relationship with God, and therefore he's pursuing these things. God has shown himself to be faithful, and therefore he can then now work from acceptance instead of for it. And so in this Lenten season, as we're considering, it is from dust we have come and we shall return to dust, that we are considering our death. Remember, under the law, under the commandments, you are destined for death. But under the gospel, you are destined for life. Let's pray. Jesus, I pray, I pray that you would bring us to a place of comfort. That if there are places where we need to be crushed in light of the law's primary purpose to show us our sin and to point us to Christ, that we might find our saving in him, I pray that you would do that. And I pray that as you continue to work through us, that we would respond freely to your commands. We long to be better people. There's no doubt about that. 
The question is not what we ought to do, but how that might happen. And so I pray that you would give each one of us a tangible experience of your Spirit's grace and love and comfort that we might be able to walk from acceptance instead of for it. In Jesus' name, amen.